Welcome to Power Up, a podcast show hosted by Maurizio Di Paolo Emilio that brings life to some of the stories on Power Electronics technologies and products featured on PowerElectronicsNews.com and through other as Pencor Media publications. In this show, you'll hear both engineers and executives discuss news, challenges, and opportunities for power electronics in markets such as automotive, industrial, and consumer. Here is your host, Editor-in-Chief of PowerElectronicsNews.com and EEWeb.com, Maurizio Di Paolo Emilio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this new episode of Power Up. The topic of today is motor control. We will analyze motor control design trends. Electric motors are widely used in several electronic applications. They are everywhere. In our homes, we have fun heaters, kitchen appliances. If you look electric motors inside the vehicle, we have a heating system, radiator cooling fans, electric windows, and so on. According to market analysis, 11 billion electric motors are added to the market each year and they account for 45% more or less of all electrical energy consumption. In this podcast with Yoseki Nones, we will analyze the fundamental concepts that every designer, maker or student must master to face a motor control application. Jose is a staff applications engineer at Corvo's Programmable Power Management Group. He received bachelor and master degrees in electronic engineering from the University of Puerto Rico. For over 20 years, he has been working with motor, driver, control and automation. Let's talk with Jose. Hi, Jose. Thanks a lot for being here. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you for having me here. So today the topic is uh, motor control, motor control design trends. So like an expert of motor control, uh, we, we would like to understand, to analyze uh, different aspects about uh, motor control. But before that, tell us, tell me, tell uh, our power electronics community more about you, about your background. Sure. Uh, so my name is Jose Quinones. Uh, I'm a senior systems and applications engineer at Corvo. I've been an engineer for about 28 years, graduated from the University of Puerto Rico, and, you know, have worked with different companies like Motorola, Xerox, Texas Instruments, Active Semi, and now working for Corvo. So a lot of semiconductor experience in the past, I would say 18 years. But, you know, always um, having something to do with motors so has been uh, kind of funny because it's been a passion for me for since I was a little kid. I've always liked stuff that moves and I can tinker with. Um, uh, earlier in my career, became obsessed and very passionate about embedded systems. I'm one of those guys that feels that everything can be solved with a microcontroller. So lots of tinkering and, you know, personal projects have to do with motors and embedded systems, but pretty much a geek at heart, a maker, uh, and of course, uh, obsessed with motors and embedded systems. And I love your videos on YouTube. <laughs> Thanks. Let's start with the, the main motors that we have uh, in the market, just a general, a general one. So focusing on specific uh, application, we have a lot. We have uh, stepper, brushless, uh, DC, AC, so industrial, automotive. So 
which is from your experience, which is the main topology and why of this choice, also based on some customers' feedback? Of course, yeah. So um, let me add to those two sectors, um, consumer and e-mobility. We, most of what we do is probably more tuned to consumer and we're starting to see, uh, to see a lot on e-mobility. Um, and then with regards to, to topologies, um, I want to, to explain a little bit. So there are so many different ways in which we can sure. get, categorize motors. Um, you know, we have uh, people, I wonder if there are, if the motor is b- between asynchronous versus synchronous, if it is AC versus DC, brush versus brushes, so many different ways in which we can categorize all of the motors that we have been making up in the last 100 years. So to say which motor goes with one of these sectors or which topology goes with these sectors is kind of hard. Um, I like to look at it more from an actual application point of view. Uh, for example, if you look at something like a ceiling fan, right? So we're starting to see a lot of uh, permanent magnet synchronous machine, PMSM motors, being used for that particular application. Uh, but if you have a, like a battery based drill, it's probably going to be a BLDC motor. If you have a range hood, it's probably going to be an AC induction motor, a vacuum cleaner. If it's a, an older start, it's probably going to be an universal AC DC motor and so on. Now the trend that we do see happening in the past, I would say I started seeing it like 20 years ago, but it has accelerated considerably in the last 10 years would be to move from AC induction to brushless and brush DC to brushless. This is basically thanks to the fact that we can now integrate um, a lot of the intelligence required to drive these, um, these topologies and the fact that they are much more efficient than their counterparts. So that's why you, you're starting now like uh, all of these tools and appliances are moving more into BLDC and PMSM topologies. So when we have uh, a motor, for sure, the most important is uh, to control the the speed. Uh, And the motor controller does uh, several uh, tasks in this uh, this regard. So maybe the most common function is to, to take under control the speed, the direction, uh, of the electric uh, electric motor by changing regulating the the voltage applied to its phases or the current anyway the controller should uh, manage uh, manage the torque power output and so on so which are your considerations uh, here um, also um, from your experience yeah so you're right. You mentioned some of the things that we look at uh, from a high level. Uh, obviously, we're always regulating current because we want to regulate torque. Uh, by regulating the voltage, we regulate the speed. Some applications will go into actually regulating power. And some smaller number of applications will work with position, right? So those are pretty much the four uh, major uh, aspects of control that we see out there. Uh, now, however, these are just, just like the tip of the iceberg in terms of parameters that we have to, to deal with from a physical point of view. 
Uh, but from an application point of view, we also have to deal with aspects such as the, the motion control quality, right? I mean, when you're regulating the speed, uh, how good are you regulating the speed? Are, are there oscillations? Um, this kind of deal is important. So that's why you want your controller to be uh, properly regulating uh, these parameters. It's also today into consideration that in some cases we are going to regulate two things just to regulate one. For example, a speed controller may res may revolve around using a current controller as well. So we pile up some of these things together to get another one um, in turn. Uh, a position controller may use a speed controller and a current controller. Uh, so once you put all of these things together, now the controller will also have to worry about uh, different things like a dynamic response. What if the load changes? Like, for example, imagine you're drilling through concrete and now you find a piece of rebar. Uh, what is the controller going to do with this? Is it going to be able to properly handle the change in torque? Because obviously, you know, the load change. So the, the controller is going to have to, to, to respond properly. And, um, you know, there's a, a lot of human interaction. There, the designers go through incredible lengths to ensure that the response is, uh, uh, akin to what the, the human user was going to be feel comfortable with. Um, there are a, a lot of psychological aspects of how it sounds. Uh, in some cases, you don't want to hear the oscillations. Not only it's, it's a psychological point of view, it also has to do with the fact that an oscillation usually transfer, translates into something that is going to be affected. So its life is going to be reduced. So you want to limit those, those effects. Now, another thing that is very important has to do with what to do with the energy that you are putting into the system. Uh, most people look at a motor and they think, well, I have a motor, but they forget that they also have a generator. You really cannot have a motor without a generator because at some point in time, you're going to stop the motor. At that point in time, it will become a generator and you have to, you have to do something with all of that energy. So now you have to think about uh, how I'm going to reroute all of this energy that I have been piling up and I may need to stop very fast. How am I going to do that? You may need to go into specialized algorithms to perform proper braking. You may need a special hardware to, uh, to be able to dump all of that energy into maybe a braking resistor, uh, or maybe some mechanical means like particle brakes. So all of these things are going to come into play um, with how the regulator uh, deals with all of these aspects. And the last one I want to talk about is how you start. Sometimes, uh, sometimes it's not very important, but in some cases, it is crucial how you start. For example, if the motor is already moving, you want to make sure that the transition from whatever speed or direction it is to the one that you want to go uh, becomes, uh, you know, it's elegant in, in the way that you go, you, you go into that. It's about sensitive and sensorless motors, which are advantages, disadvantages, maybe. Yeah, so I like to divide sensor in three in three categories. Uh, so we're going to have application-specific sensor, which is basically something that the application needs. Like if you have a pump or a or, or some sort of a, a air handling, you may need a pressure sensor or maybe an airflow sensor. So those are uh, sensors that you need for the application. But then we have topological sensors that basically define what the motor is. For example, if you have a servo, you're probably going to have an absolute or a relative position encoder. Um, and that basically transform whatever motor you have. It could be brush or easy induction or brush. It doesn't matter. It transformed that motor into a servo. Now, I think when we talk about sensor and sensorless, 
most of the time it has to do um, with brushless DC motor technologies and the fact that you know when we when we move from AC induction or brush DC to brushless technology, we lose the ability to know the position of the shaft. And the problem is that for a motor to work, we need to apply a revolving magnetic field at the right uh, position so that we can maximize torque. Now, uh, on the brushless DC motor, we don't have this, so we need to add some way of extracting the rotor position so that we can um, close the loop on that. So usually what people do is that they put three-hole sensors to extract the information, um, and then they can apply the vector appropriated with the, with the sector that they want to operate at. The problem with this is that, you know, everybody talks about the cost of the whole sensors, and they imagine the problem is that these whole sensors are so expensive. In reality, the whole sensor is not that expensive. It's just a few cents. The problem is that once you put these whole sensors in the motor, they have to land exactly where they need to land in order for you to be able to apply the right vector. If they are a little bit off, now you have an inefficiency that is not very appealing. If they're incredibly off, now the real cost is that the entire motor is basically useless because it's, it's, it's not properly tuned. So that is the real cost, is that if you make 100 motors, you may end up with 95, and some of these motors are very expensive. So now you have five defective motors. That's, that's way much more than 20 or 30 cents. It could be hundreds of dollars. That's why we see an incredible... <laughs> pull uh, or push towards sensorless applications where you can remove the whole sensor from the equation and just um, uh, basically you uh, drive the motor without sensor. But, you know, that's kind of a misnomer because in reality there is no such thing as a sensorless motor. In reality, what we're doing is that we're using the motor as a sensor and the way that we do that is by taking advantage of the back EMF because by looking at the back EMF, we can learn of the position of the rotor. So there are applications where we can do this with no problem. Usually applications where the starting torque is very low, so we can apply certain uh, open loop energy, energizing, energizing vectors, get the motor to move, get the back EMF, and then go from there. But if it is a high starting load, uh, high starting load, this doesn't work because like I said, the motor is the sensor, but only if the, if the motor is moving and we have a back EMF. So if the motor is not moving, then we cannot extract back EMF and we cannot start the motor. So what you're going to see is that in applications, let's say an e-bike, maybe a chainsaw or a circular saw, you're going to need the whole sensors just to get started. Now, one thing that I didn't mention in terms of the cost of the whole sensor, in some cases you may have a good motor, but then one whole, one whole sensor dies throughout the life of the product. So now you have a motor that has like two-thirds of the information that it need, how do you cope with that? So there are different control structures where you can basically use best of both words. You use the whole sensors to get started, and then you switch to uh, sensorless, because at the end of the day, the reality is you only need the whole sensors to get started. Once you have a EMF, you can switch to sensorless, 
So we, we're starting to see a lot of implementations where we're taking advantage of both words. We use the whole sensors, whole sensors for starting, and then we switch to sensorless for conventional, um, uh, rot, uh, rotation. And of course, if the whole sensors are damaged or they are a little bit off, it doesn't matter because it's just going to be a little, a, a, a little not so good at the beginning. And then it just, uh, the sensorless takes over. So let's talk about integration. <clears throat> Today we have uh, many, a lot of integrated uh, motor control and drive devices. They, they are complex, highly complex. So instead of use uh, discrete components, we, now we can uh, integrate these blocks into a single device, talking about motor control. So which are the challenges here? Yeah, so... Uh, for example, the device that I've been working for the past 10 years, it's a device that incorporates most of what you need to drive a three-phase uh, BLDC or PMSA motor. So it has all of the blocks, uh, like a microprocessor, um, it has the DC to DC converter, LDOs, uh, analog front end, gate drivers. It's pretty much everything that you need except the switches and some passives. So the first thing that has to come to mind when you integrate so many different pieces of silicon into a single device solution is going to be the thermal limitation, I mean, or the thermal reality. You are basically moving all of these things that would have been single ICs into one IC. So... Of course, the, uh, the thermal, the thermal sort of first thing that you have to take into consideration because now you're going to be pumping current to turn on and off the, the gates of, uh, of the six MOSFETs. You're going to be taking a high voltage. It could be up to 600 volts. We have devices that work up to 600 volts. You're going to be stepping that down to 12 or 15 volts. Then we have LDOs inside. It's a lot of, a lot of energy that will have to be properly um, taken care of. Now, of course, you know, the way that we device, um, uh, these devices are designed is such that we have good thermal impedance. We have a power pad and it basically that allows us to cope with that. But that kind of limits you to what you can do. You really cannot expect that you are going to integrate something that can do a hundred kilowatts because, because of thermals. I mean, you would need so, so massive gate drive currents to, to go to those extremes. And of course, at those, at those levels, the thermals, they, they just don't apply for integration. Uh, the other problem you're going to have is you're, you're going to have some limitations because of course you have an integrated device. So, you will be given uh, an input voltage range. We have devices that can do 40, 70 volts, 160, and 600, but each device, it's on its own range of voltage, so you're going to have to work with that. Um, and then the gate drive strength is also fixed, so you're going to have, uh, it could be one amp sync source, or it could be two amps, depending on the family of devices. But, you know, if you need more, then, of course, um this wouldn't work for you because that device basically fixed on what it can do. Now, something that you have to take into consideration, some of these devices, they come with a pre-fabricated or pre-coded algorithm. They will do, I don't know, they can do, some of them do FOC, some of them do six-step trapezoidal with whole or without sensors, but that's it. You get, that's what you get. The one that I work with is a microprocessor, so it's basically empty. You can put in there whatever you want. You can put FOC, 6-step trapezoidal, whole sensor, no sensor. It doesn't matter. It could be a servo. Whatever you want, you can uh, basically code it. 
and put it on the microprocessor. So you have to take into consideration what is your algorithm flexibility because you may want to enhance your algorithm at a later time. And if it is a fixed black box, of course, you won't be able to. And the last thing that I wanted to mention in terms of when you get a, a an integrated device, you're going to have to be a little bit uh, creative with the with the grounding and the routing on the layout because now everything is on on a single die or a single chip versus when you have you know like three half inch bridge gate drivers and a bunch of differential amplifiers and single ended amplifiers. It's um, when you have all of the components separate. You, you can play with the grounding probably a little bit easier. Now, on the plus side, when you have everything on a single die, it's so compact that the grounding is pretty good. But you have to be careful, though, because that grounding is set in the chip. Whatever happens outside, you're going to have to be mindful on how you're going to do it. We have seen layouts that are fantastic, some layouts that are not very good. So luckily, we know what to do, and we can tell customers, okay, you know, Move this here, move this there. This is going to give you better response. So already know how to make it work. But it is something that you need to keep your eyes open because, of course, it is a different mindset as when you're coming from a, from a discrete point of view. Not only integration, there are also other, other challenges. So you, you say the thermal management and this will be, will be an issue for efficiency in general of the motor control system. And uh, in terms of motor, like hardware, mechanical structure will be also um, an important consideration, maybe a, a challenges. Um, so if there are other challenges, but uh, my next one is what about wideband gap for motor control? Yeah, so there are, there are other integration. There are uh, lots of challenges that you need to take into consideration when dealing with pretty much any controller. Um, I'll go into the band gap in a little bit, but let me start by saying, so the efficiency, of course, is mm -hmm. crucial. Um, one of the good things about today's motor controllers is that they are very flexible in what you can do with them. So we're always learning how to enhance our algorithms uh, to to get a, a little bit more efficiency out of the system. Now, yeah. the the reality is, at the end of the day, the efficiency, uh, we, we are at the point where we really cannot do a whole lot with firmware alone. I mean, you will have to be parting from a really uh, not efficient system to get huge efficient leaps in, by just changing the firmware. Today, most of the efficiency pitfalls are in the switches, you know, what is, you, what is your RDS on? What are the switching losses? Um, what kind of, uh, what kind of parasitic components you have on your layout? Those things are probably higher components of a lack of efficiency than the algorithm itself. But, you know, mm -hmm. there is some, some stuff you can do with the algorithm. Um, so that's always something to keep in mind. Then other challenges that you need to, to take into consideration, EMI, uh, electromagnetic interference. We're switching inductive loads. Uh, there are some high frequencies in some cases. So you have to always be mindful of this. Um, you're going to have to, in some cases, pass uh, EMI certification. So this is something that has to be, you have to be conscious and you have to take into consideration. Then safety certifications. Some applications are a little bit more um, uh, demand, a little bit more uh, from a safety point of view. 
there are power tools that are uh, that are incredibly dangerous, like a chainsaw uh, or a circular saw. So the safety, um, uh, the safety con- uh, considerations that we have to put in, in in those tools is obviously much more than than uh, maybe a drill or a sander. So be mindful that you will have to take safety into consideration. And you know the one that always comes into play is the cost structure. I would love it if we could just design these um these three phase inverters from a cool point of view. Look at that, I got this much power or look at that, I have this uh better efficiency, but at the end of the day, most applications um rely on the cost structure. Um you could make something very close to 100% efficient if you had super expensive switches, but are people going to be willing to pay for that product in the consumer? Not so much. Maybe on industrial, you can, you can get a little bit, uh, uh, more, you can open up your wallet a little bit more on industrial than on consumer. So every, every sector is different, but the cost structure at some point in time is going to have to make you realize. Um, so how about the, the bank app switching? We see a lot uh, happening. With the bank gap, the, you know, the gallium nitride, the silicon carbide, this is something that has started to creep up in the motor drive industry. Now, if it is like high power, they have been out there for, for a very long time and it's of course happening much faster. But in the kind of stuff that I deal with, which is anything between 300 to 3000 watts, uh, they're not there yet. Um, yeah. we, we, our company did acquire a silicon carbide company a few years ago, United Silicon Carbide. So we started, um, uh, offering silicon carbide MOSFETs. And I actually did a reference design with one of our devices, the PAC 5556, using one of their silicon carbide MOSFETs. And, you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing because what you get is a device that can switch so fast that, that your, your switching losses decrease considerably. It also um, is a technology that gives you a very low RDSM. So comparatively to IGBTs and MOSFETs, you're going to get less conduction losses. So those are those are some seriously nice improvements. But unfortunately, the cost structure is not there for, let's say, uh, a consumer product. Usually these are used on anything past 600 volts. So I would say, um, it would be maybe white goods or, uh, or kitchen appliances that would start to get to these technologies first. But because of the cost structure, I don't see that yet. Now, maybe in five or 10 years, as the price come down, it's probably gonna, it's gonna take over because it would allow for some nice efficiency improvements. So I would have to imagine it's gonna happen, but it's not necessarily there yet for the kind of applications that I w- deal with in the day to day. So we have just, uh, maybe we can talk more about white band gap for motor control in another podcast. We have sure. just a few minutes. Uh, you say my last, uh, my last question. Uh, so just, uh, thinking uh, for young designers. So what are your suggestions for a new motor control designer that is coming in this uh, market, in this field, also for young people, students, PhD students, which are resources that are available for, for engineers, for new engineers too? Yeah, sure. Listen, my first advice is, uh, be patient and learn the application, not the motor, but the application. 
there are hundreds of different ways in which you can build a motor today, and they are all different. I get asked by my management all the time, can you make a firmware that works for all of the motors out there? There is no such a thing because each motor is so unique, each application is so unique. So be patient, learn the lots of physics related to <clears throat> whatever you're trying to accomplish. You know, learn about thermal management, parasitic inductances, where are the power losses, where can you improve, uh, learn about acceleration curves, learn your motor and your application, and maybe focus on one first and learn it very well. Because most of what you learn with that application and that motor is probably going to transfer, you know. Voltage is voltage on every motor. They In pretty much every topology, they transfer to speed. Torque is always current. So once you learn something with one, it, most of it will transfer <coughs> to, to the next. Um, you know, I would pick up one algorithm and get really good at it and then diversify. But don't try to learn them all at once. Um in terms of resources, <clears throat> well, you're in luck because there are so many out there. You know, you can go to so many places today and get schematics on how these inverters are put in place, H-bridges, three-phase inverters. There are so many schematics. Layout, there is code. You can literally open uh, the code that I wrote for the six-step trapezoidal and see every single line of code on how it is sensorless, how we extract the whole sensor information, how we regulate current, how we do PI loops. All of that is available. Um, there are application notes on how you can do post-wheel modulation, current circulation, all of these topics have been studied extensively. So there are so many resources out there. All you need to do is get started. So many resources. Good. Thank you, Jose. We are at the conclusion and insightful conversation. Thanks a lot for joining at Power Up. Thank you so much for having me here. I hope that I talk to you again sometime soon. That brings us to the end of this episode. Stay tuned with more news and technical aspects about power electronics. If you are listening to this on the podcast page at eetimes.com or powerelectronicsnews.com, links to articles on topics we have discussed are shown in this page. Power Up is brought to you by Aspencore Media, the host is Maurizio Di Paolo Emilio and the producer is James Eid. Thank you everyone for listening, see you next episode, stay tuned.